Technology alone can't solve the challenges nonprofits face, and that's why Neon One provides software that empowers you to manage constituents, all while giving you the resources and support you need to connect to what matters most, your people and their passions. Learn more about how Neon One is helping nonprofits create stronger connections by visiting neonone.com slash weareforgood. Hey friends, we're gearing up for next week's Mental Health Week on the podcast where we're going to drop five episodes to lift the conversation around burnout, fatigue, how to cultivate resilience in our life, and you know we're going to have stories of hope through the power of community too. Today, we want to set the tone with a powerful mental health conversation Becky and I hosted at the Responsive Nonprofit Summit presented by Virtuous. We brought together some of the most heartwired and brilliant leaders to set the stage for why it's time to prioritize mental health in our sector. Hope you enjoy. Hey, I'm John. And I'm Becky. And this is the We Are For Good podcast. Nonprofits are faced with more challenges to accomplish their missions and the growing pressure to do more, raise more, and be more for the causes that improve our world. We're here to learn with you from some of the best in the industry, bringing the most innovative ideas, inspirational stories, all to create an impact uprising. So welcome to the good community. We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world. So let's get started. We're just so um, honored to be here and to have this space. And we really wanted to hit mental health right between the eyes because the reality is I don't think we were okay before the pandemic. And the re- and we know that the pandemic really heightened the what our anxiety, compassion fatigue, and these kinds of things. And we have curated the most amazing humans. I feel like we have hyped them up. We need to introduce them now. My, our first uh, panelist is Anika Allen, CFRE. She is the principal and founder of the Empathy Agency. She is in Toronto. And I, oh my gosh, we're holding it up. She has the most amazing book that is a must read for all development professionals called Collecting Courage. That is a a really macro level view of how it is to be a black fundraiser in this industry. And I love the empathy that's embedded there. Thank you, Anika. We're so glad that you're here. Isla Malik, our queen of leadership and evolved team building is out of San Francisco. And she is the founder and CEO of Venture Leadership Consulting and the way that she brings teams together in the way that she sees the one person is so human and amazing. We're going to Tennessee with our darling friend, Eleanor Wells, who is a triple threat. She is not only a nurse and a counselor, but she is an amazing human. And so she is going to break down all of the uh, compassion fatigue burnout that we're going to talk about today. And we love having your insight here. And last but certainly not least, our favorite Haitian friend, Jean-Pierre Louis with Capri Care out in New York City, who is also <laughs> running the most amazing nonprofit. He's the executive director and founder of Capri Care that is doing the very difficult and hard work on the front lines of Haiti out in Fonfried. So we are going to have a dynamic conversation. Thank you all for being here. And I want to kick it, I think, first to Eleanor. Um, We want to kind of set the stage and define what we're talking about in terms of specifically compassion, fatigue, and burnout. Could you define this a little bit, Eleanor? Because there, there is a very big distinction between compassion, fatigue, and burnout. And we'd love any stats that you could wrap around it as well. Well, 
first of all, what an honor it is to be on this panel. And I'm so excited to see all of you all. I've listened to all your podcasts. You are amazing individuals, and it is such a, a pleasure to be on this panel with you. And um, I'm so, so excited to be a part. And so to start talking about burnout and compassion fatigue, it's really boring to give a definition in signs and symptoms. So I'm going to tell a story. So um, when I was in coaching school, um, I needed a lot of coaching hours. And so I um, approached a nonprofit that I had been on the board of. I had been a volunteer. I'd actually been an employee of the organization and asked them if I could coach some of their staff around the topic of burnout, because that's just what I'm so interested in. So it's very interesting that they connected me to their admissions team. And this is an organization that serves women dealing with drug addiction. And so the admissions team is the front line, the answering the phone call to those who are seeking this kind of treatment. So what I found was a group of basically on the whole young women most of them were right out of college, mission-driven, so excited to be involved with this kind of work, and they just loved what they did at first. And I saw them months later, and these young women were um, tired. They were worn out. They sat at their desk all day long. They never took a break. They all talked about that they were gaining weight, that their relationships were suffering because they got home and all they wanted to do was veg out on Netflix and sit on the couch. And so there was a real um, sense that something was not right in this organ with this group of women. And the more I dug in, though, I also heard things like, you don't know the stories that I listen to all day long, because what they were listening to were stories either of someone who knew they were at the bottom and needed treatment, or a husband, or a mother, or a sister, or a best friend that was calling and sharing these unbelievable stories of what was happening to their loved one. So here's the difference. Burnout were those situations with those women where they were overworked, underpaid, they felt like they couldn't take a break, they sat through lunch because if they got away from the phone, they would come back and have too much to do. So burnout is more workload, organizational type of situations. But these women also were suffering from compassion fatigue because they were listening to stories all day long that were tragic and hard and they didn't their bodies didn't really understand oh that's not my story i'm just hearing those stories all day long and what they were really experiencing was secondary trauma so they were starting exhibiting the signs of ptsd which can look very similar to burnout but the etiology is different because it's coming from trauma, not their own trauma, but hearing that trauma all day long. So when you look at nonprofits, we see this in so many different ways, depending on what the mission is and what the, you know, what their, their uh, mission is all for, they can 
people can be hearing trauma all day long and they don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to compartmentalize it. Their bodies are reacting to it, but then they're also in really difficult work situations. So you're, you're dealing with the burnout and the compassion fatigue. So I know you'd also ask about statistics. It's really hard to wrap your arms around that right now. The story I just told was pre-pandemic, but we know that since the pandemic, The rates of burnout and compassion fatigue have soared. Um, We're seeing it in nonprofit. We're seeing it in schools. We're seeing it in ministry. We're seeing it in, um, of course, the medical field. Um, I've read things as much as 50%. I've seen things upward to 60 to 70%. We really can't wrap our arms around it. But what we do know is that it's here it's growing, and there's it's something that we really must um, address. Yeah, I think your acknowledgement of that just being a bystander can be trauma on a different level because I think we focus on just the direct, but there's all this indirect happening at so yeah. many levels. Does somebody else want to jump in with your experience that's on the panel? I'll just add one um, piece. So uh, just for background for the audience, I am um, now a consultant. I spent about 14, 15 years in the juvenile justice space. Um, going in and out of incarcerated facilities, working with young people. And now for the last 15 months have been, um, I, I now am a CEO for hire and I come into organizations and do turnaround artistry. And the last organization that I've been the CEO of for 15 months is in the foster care space. Mm. So they're always human services direct line. And um, in the pandemic, one of the other interesting pieces was our leadership team began to express that at the leadership level, at the C-suite or the senior director level, you only actually get the problem situations. And we Mm -hmm. had a lot of them, right? People who were isolated. We had overdose uh, deaths. We had all kinds of things in our programs. And so what rises to us is the liabilities and the crises. And um, what our senior leadership team expressed was that because we were not in the office, we didn't also get the happy feelings of knowing when we had client successes. So Frontline was still getting client success. They were also getting all the hard times, but actually upper management, so to speak, though I hate that term, were only getting the difficult situations. Wow. And so we started getting really intentional about lifting up client success stories um, via email and staff meetings that were virtual because people were having far higher rates of compassion fatigue um, because all they were seeing was the trauma and yeah. not, not the celebration. So just wanted to add that piece. Holy smokes, Isla, that was so wise and, and, and heartbreaking. And I think it's really indicative of what we're discovering because once we start to pick at this thread in the nonprofit sector, I mean, it just starts to unravel just simply by virtue of asking the question of how are you doing today? And Noah, I would love it if you have results because we would love to know how our audience is doing today. It's it's really um, the beginning of a journey. And so, oh, I, I'm so glad to see that everybody's really doing fairly well today. But, you know, we see you all who are not doing well. If you're being, if we're being honest, you're doing poorly. We understand that. And I think this is a space and a table where it's like, it's okay to not be okay 
right now and to name that and claim that. And so, you know, I would love to kind of transition to Anika and I want to talk about, there's a lot of converging dynamics at play for how we got here, both historically and with the current reality of what we're facing right now. So two driving forces in the last 18 months clearly have been a global pandemic, but just even this uprest with social justice. And so Anika has this amazing book that we've referenced, and that is not us. We're getting no royalties from selling <laughs> Anika's book. We just, it is so it. powerful because these are our friends who are in the sector who mm-hmm. are going back to their trauma and they're talking about what it meant to be otherized or pushed down in the sector. And I think about having that even pre-pandemic, pre-racial injustice. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in your sector? Because we really want to shine a light, Anika, on what mental health is doing to our friends of color and those that are not at the table. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So good to be with you, John and Becky. I just want to say I'm joining you from Abbotsford, BC. So in the summer, I I made a move from Ontario to to British Columbia. Just for anybody out there who knows me, they would say she's not in Toronto. And I also want (laughs) to point out that it's not just my book. It It is an anthology and a collection of stories, first person narratives of my sisters and brothers uh, in in fundraising, both in Canada and the United States. So I, I want to share that uh, that it is it was a collective effort. Yeah, it, I love this idea of looking at mental health and mental illness from a pre-COVID, post-COVID perspective because I think all of the things that Eleanor and Isla shared are true and were true for us uh, pre-COVID. Racism was also true for us pre-COVID. And so COVID is just this other layer on top. And so I think it's, you know, really important to first say, you know, racism is a mental health issue because it causes trauma. Mm. Preach. Right? And trauma paints a direct line to mental illness if it's not taken seriously. You know, past trauma is predominantly mentioned as the reason that people experience mental health conditions today. And so racism is an obvious form of that. And it's just the tip of the iceberg, you know, the way racism expresses itself overtly, it's only the tip of the iceberg. There's this covert current constantly, perpetually happening. And I think the stories in Collecting Courage really lay those realities bare for the readers. Everyday people of color are experiencing subtle traumas, color blindness. Alien in my own land. Nika, where are you from? I'm from Canada. No, no, where are your parents from? They're from Canada too. And where are their parents from? Well, they're from Canada too. So the, the long story is, my, pam- my family's been in, in North America for nearly 450 years. We descend from American slavery. And so answering that question over and over and over again is like this revalidation, revalidating of who you are and why you're here and why are you taking up this space? The ascription of intelligence. Well, you, you speak really well. You're so articulate. 
right? Mm. Criminality, clutching purses as, you know, Black people are walking by or, you know, feeling a sense of fears, you know, Black people get close. The assumption that Black people are only the beneficiaries in the nonprofit sector, this is really prevalent, that we have nothing to contribute. The assumption is that we are only takers, that we can't be donors, that we're not philanthropists. We survive predominantly white spaces where our contributions are ignored, discounted. And I found that the impact of racism for me personally has been humiliating, dehumanizing, painful, illness-inducing, both mental and physical. You know, we're visible, you know, people see our Blackness, so we can't hide that. And then as I was saying at the top, you know, when you layer on the stress of COVID, you know, I think about the first few months of the pandemic, and I was still working full-time in a fundraising role and doing my consulting part-time. And in that, in the first mm, four months, I had lost 14 people. 14 people in my world died. And none of my colleagues had a similar experience. Nobody asked me about my experience. Nobody asked, well, what is, how is COVID impacting you or your family or your community? So there was nobody to, to relate to the experience that I was having of COVID at that time. So in many experiences, you know, I have found pre and post COVID, these realities have caused us to flee or try to escape our organizations for our own well-being. I mean, Anika, every time you talk and you share, one, I, f- I feel my heart gets crushed um, at the realities of what our friends of color are having to face every single day in fundraising. Two, I always want to thank you for sharing as vulnerably as you do, because I realize it's a trauma for you to come back and have to share this each time. I want to thank you for sharing. Um, and I just, I think it gives a different lens and I can see the comments. Um, Shivani, I really love your comments about, you know, how many times have I been told, oh, you speak English really well. I mean, just those kind of comments that are so cutting and biting that we have got to rewire our brains to think about how painful they are. And I love Anika that your company is called the empathy agency because empathy to me is the great catalyst for, you know, pouring into our mental health and taking care of ourselves. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I can see this is resonating with people that are um, in the audience. And I just think even as hard as these topics are, guys, we have got to dive into them because cognitive diversity and understanding the role that someone else has played and the way that their lived experience has informed their life is going to grow our hearts. It's going to grow our minds. It allows us to come into community and kind of unite. So I would love for anybody um, else on the panel who wants to riff on that or jump in, please jump in. I'm kind of speechless. Um, Just thank you for, you know, 
your vulnerability, what you've had to say. It's just so important that we we understand and we connect and that just thank you. I just appreciate where you're coming from. And it's, it's so, so important. You know, it makes me think too, that um, we have a way that we help a process that we help people deal with um, compassion, fatigue, and burnout. And the very first step is grieve. And we don't give ourselves time to grieve. And it can be grieving of loss of expectation. It can be grieving of it can be grieving of so many things, right? That my life hasn't gone like I wanted it to, or I thought it was going to go this way, or I had this great mission that I really wanted to start something and it's not working like I thought. And I hear in your story that there's just, there's opportunity and need to grieve. We've got to do that. And I know Becky and John, y'all talk about, and, and, and I heard it on all of your podcasts, just that community. We need to grieve as a community. We need to bind together and work together to get through this. This is not a a one-step, one-person process. In fact, Becky and John know the word self-care kind of makes me, you know, twitch because- Talk about that. Yeah. It's just not self, you know? I mean, it's so much more than working by ourselves. We have got to bind together. We've got to help each other. We've got to grieve these places together. It's just super, super important. Um, So thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for saying that, Eleanor. And, And if I could just add that you were absolutely right about grief and how it is frequently discounted in our society and, it, and, and the important role that it actually plays in healing. In order to get to grief, we have to tell the truth. That's right. Hearing the, your, um, your explanation of racism and past trauma, actually, you know, just hearing that is, makes me feel emotional just to hear it. And the reason why is because I know when I came here, I was nine years old. That's what, it's, that's what that was my first experience um, coming to America. And that's not what my expectation was. And um, Becky and John knows my story on why I studied capital. It was a personal reason because of the kids teasing me, calling me Haitian to go back to Haiti where I come from. And I was like, wow, you know, and then. I took it as a challenge to go help make where I come from a better place for those who are there. But then hearing it some more, I take it to another deeper level right now. When you're looking at, you know, um, the Haitians who are at the border in Del Rio, Texas, the Haitian people as a whole, 11 million people, you know, who are, who are, who are very courageous um, you hear the word resilient all the time, which you know, I makes feeling about that. But they have always been great people, great contributors to our world. And racism has played a major part in their current plights for where even the people in Haiti cannot even live in their own country because of the external racism that actually impacts them. When you're now looking at mental health and that how that impacts a whole country and individuals, it goes straight to the babies that's being born today. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to, um, to experience that. Just last week, this lady, uh, you know, you have a mass of people going from 
uh, 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 from one country, from leaving from Haiti, going around North America to come to the United States, traveling to 14 countries in the woods and jungles, you know, uh, uh, in planes, boat, walking several months just to make it here and to get to a border where you're getting that kind of treatment where you saw people on horses whipping them, you know, to try to send them back where they come from. And now you have the country experiencing, the people now experiencing what they're experiencing right now with the whole COVID state, uh, 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 their president being assassinated. Mm-hmm. People are losing hope. Last week, one of our person in the community lost everything during Hurricane Matthew in 2016, talking about past trauma, and now having to lose everything again in this earthquake, and she's a single mom, I mean, lose everything, she was trying to kill herself. Mm. But to lose hope. So when you're looking at mental health and past trauma and where we currently at, and the role that individuals play in that, those who lack empathy, understanding, it really hurts as a human being because we're all human beings. You know, so to hear your story about collecting, you know, I'm, I want to read the book to go a little deeper about collecting courage because courage is one of my favorite word. Um, in fact, Catholic here, my organization, the definition of it is called an act of courage. Mm-hmm. So we have to be more courageous right now. Us, you know, the, the world has two types of people, plain and simple. You either are good, and if you're good, whoever you believe in, you, you are probably closer to God. And if you're not good, then you believe then that means you are probably in the team of evil, so you probably proceed to the devil. So we are here who are you know in the team for good, you really have to bend together and really kind of support those who are going through it. And right now there is no better time for us to really bend together and support each other around That's the right. problems that we are going through. I just wanted to add a couple of two cents. I love everything you all are saying. Anika, thank you for keeping it real and bringing up the consciousness. Just took it, you know, took it up, took it down, whatever the depth level is. Um, You did it really quickly and beautifully and gracefully. Um, I think that grieving, though a human condition, absolutely, and such a release is, is in a sense, a luxury. Um, It's in a sense a privilege sometimes because when you are in the midst of survival, it's difficult to make space for grief to then have the energy to continue to thrive and survive. I don't know that that's clinically correct. I'm just saying that I think for for many folks that are are in the human condition experience, there's a a toggle between um, the energy to breathe and really be, be, be vulnerable and be in, in, in process with the hurt versus having to arm up and gear up and continue on. And so what I wanted to bring it into is I think um, one of the things so powerful, Jean Pierre about hope, I think hope is a, an incredible superpower for wellness and for resilience. Um, And um Sometimes to get hope or to have that place where you can be vulnerable and unmasked and real and grieve, um, you have to have uh, somebody who can relate and understand the systemic experience or compounded vicarious trauma um, that somebody is going through. And so, you know, the buzzword pre-pandemic, 
early on in the sector has been culturally competent services. And I will just say that that we are in sore need of culturally competent services across the sector because of systemic injustice. Many folks um, of color have not been able to um, be in conditions in which it, it is easy to get degrees around licensed clinical Um, therapy or doctors or different kinds of degrees. And so what we notice in the sector is that the old guard, a lot of the practitioners and mental health practitioners and experts um, are not of color. And we have our young people and our constituents that are of color and are carrying around these backpacks of weight, um, whether vicarious or direct, um, and or whether again and again, Jean-Pierre, to your point of of hurricane and earthquake and pandemic. I mean, and um, and we have folks that say, you know, I I I don't find the hope in this clinical relationship because I gotta see someone to be someone. Like I got, I have to have that proximate feeling of some of understanding and relation. And so I want to lift up that like the stuff we're talking about, I think, and, and the whole sector is talking about, the movement's talking about is real. It's heavy. It's it's not, it's not a hashtag, it's not a moment. It is, it is, it is gonna be a long time, long load of work. And, and the, the things that we used to toss around as buzzwords like culturally competent services needs to come back with more weight and force in this, con- in this context. We have to give folks people that they can relate to that are also able to clinically help create vulnerable spaces and safe spaces for grief, for uh, the chance to breathe and diffuse so that they can gear up and arm up and excel and uplift out of the oppression that they've been feeling for generations and generations and generations. So I just wanted to add that I think, you know, we have to also take a look at the sectoral language and the wisdom that we've had in the sector, but we've forgotten um, over, over, or maybe we never had the wisdom in the, in the deep way that we have it now, but we need to capitalize on it and really understand what does that mean? So what has to be true for cultural competence services? What, where in the pipeline do we need to create access and opportunities such that we can have the kinds of services that people need now? Um, so I'll just, I'll leave it at that, please. Taking a quick pause from today's episode to thank our sponsor, who also happens to be one of our favorite companies, Virtuous. You know we believe everyone matters, and we've witnessed the greatest philanthropic movements happen when you both see and activate donors at every level, and Virtuous is the platform to help you do just that. It's so much more than a nonprofit CRM. Virtuous helps charities reimagine generosity through responsive fundraising, volunteer management, and online giving, and we love it because this approach builds trust and loyalty through personalized engagement. Sounds like Virtuous might be a fit for your organization. Learn more today at virtuous.org or follow the link in our show notes. Hey friends, meet our new partner, Gravity. Gravity provides an ecosystem of products to energize, mobilize, and steward your network of believers. One of its products is Community, your force for digital member communities. You know we believe community is everything, and Gravity's community is designed to help take your organization's community engagement virtual and make members feel welcome and connected anytime, anywhere. With its video-first platform, your community can have access to state-of-the-art virtual networking experiences with a personalized feed, 
directory to connect with peers, and virtual events all in one place. The Coca-Cola Scholars Foundation is a great example of a community customer who uses the platform to connect, get back, and expand their scholar and alumni network. Its community platform allows members to connect by networking with fellow members and alumni to build relationships and mentorships. Learn how Gravity's community engages employees and in return keeps them happy, involved, enriched, and motivated. Learn more at gravity.com. That's gravity, G-R-A-V-Y-T-Y.com. Now let's get back to this feel-good conversation. Holy smokes. I mean, I knew our panelists were smart, but the synergy of what you guys are bringing and the empathy and, you know, I will just share, I shared my personal mm-hmm. mental health breakdown on the podcast and what a nervous breakdown looks like in the modern day. And I had that with privilege, you know, and I just think that when we think about that through the lens, something that we've learned and you touched on it, Isla, is that you cannot begin to heal until you feel safe. And so for all of you who are listening right now and tuning in, my, my question to you is, how are you making your organization safe? How are you making your employees feel safe that they can talk to you about their conditions? And so I know we have a poll and I love, Isla, that you are bringing up. We can't just talk about it. We got to get active. And that's where the great catalyst of change is going to happen in our sector. So Noah, I know we have another poll and it's about... Do you all know if you have access to mental health resources or benefits in your organization? We would love to know how many of you actually have access to that because this could be a major hole that we have in our sector. So please take that poll. We would love to hear. And that might inform that we need to do a lot more, which that would be my guess, John, that we need to do a lot more. Yeah, absolutely. Isla specifically, you know, she comes in and helps organizations at times of serious transition. And I just think that has to be um, so compounded right now, you know, the, the organizations you're walking into. And so could you kind of walk us through, how do you counsel leaders? Because we're talking about the individual person today. And I think the humanity of each of the stories that have come up speak to your individual journey, but as a leader, and I know we're all leaders on one level too, but you're trying to manage your own, but you're also trying to shepherd your team and family and the layers. JPL, you've got teams, you know, globally that you're shepherding too. How do you walk people through that? You know, how do you point them in a direction and how do you prioritize any of that? I'm going to kick it to you. I let a riff and any of anybody can jump in. And then I'll kick it back to, I want to hear what JPL has to say about it too. I think it's, a, um, um, Gosh, you know, I, I think that there's there's a lot of things that come to mind. Um, so the first is one one that I mentioned. I think reminding yourself, having a very intense and honest conversation with yourself of what is your highest and greatest purpose and joy in this moment. And that may be serving the mission that you serve. And in that case, how do you get proximate to your mission? How do you get reminded about the value that you hold with your mission, with everything else that we hold um, and the things that come around that don't feel as um as, as clearly aligned, right? So I think it's about your own personal conversation and personal alignment. At least that, that's, that was something I have used as a tool. And then if I'm, if I'm doubling down on that alignment, it's knowing that it's a long haul. I firmly believe that I, one of the things that I, I often counsel leaders to do is, is, is dissect where their validation is coming from. Is your validation coming from, um, and, and, and no judgment about that, by the way. There's not a judgment 
Oh. It's not a judgment exercise. It's an exercise of, of awakening. It, for many years, my validation came from feeling important and being too busy to, you know, I didn't know that it was a secret. It was a seductive validation, but that I was so busy that I, I had to work on the weekends and I just, I just had to work. I had to work. Or my validation was that if I leave, this organization is going to fold and nobody will be here to do the work. Or my validation is um, that, you know, I, I am going to be the best leader that this organization has ever had. And I'm going to be the most loved and beloved CEO or whatever your validation structure is, know it, interact with it and decide if that's what you want. Um, so for me, mental wellness in my, uh, I have a sprinting culture. So I sprint with organizations in their pace, and then I have to rest and take on another mission. And the missions that are, you know, homelessness and foster care, they're very, they're very um, difficult, you know, very direct missions. And um, in, in my own validation structure, I have to remember that for me, validation is can the can the mission get completed beyond the current cast of characters in the seats? The, the missions that our organizations have are like needed for the world. Social justice, like I believe in equity and justice. I believe in that utopic vision where we can take equity as a as for granted that it just exists because that's how we are now. That I believe that that's what drives me. And so and so getting there is not going to actually happen in my lifetime. I would love for it to. But but so it's not about me. It's about how it is that I can contribute to this mesh mission and leave it and pass it in a way that it will sustain until the work is done. And that may be multiple generations. And so that's so esoteric. But what I what I mean is when you have that perspective, you begin to create less importance on the stresses of the day and give yourself the pace and the breath that you need for the long haul, that the organization, it's okay for the organization to fail because that guess what? The organization gets to fix it. And then the organization will actually succeed in its mission. So that discomfort becomes an opportunity of growth in a real sense. And it allows some freedom for me to just breathe and be me and say, I don't feel like getting up out of bed. I just need to garden and not talk, pick up my phone at all and just be in dirt. I need to drive and sit in my car by myself or be in the bathroom. <laughs> you know, like Whatever your style of of inward rejuvenation is, um, then then it's that. And so I just, it, I think it's about having perspective and perspective comes in my opinion from deep soul searching and asking some tough questions of yourself. Can I just jump in and, and oh, be back on, on that? Because I love so much of about what you just shared. My answer is we need to become people focused. And I think that's what you're getting to not just focused on the people we serve. So this is, you know, from the perspective of, you know, a fundraiser, you know, and so not just the people we serve, but also the people who help us serve those people. So everyone. And I believe that um, we, we must root ourselves in a love ethic. Empathy is the precursor to love. But I think if we aim to root ourselves in a love ethic, which presupposes that everyone has the right to be free, to live full, and to live well. I think that changes how we lead, how we live. It changes everything. Bell hooks, one of my favorites. 
Um, she believes that in order to bring a love ethic into every dimension of our lives, our society would need to embrace change. Domination cannot exist in any social situation where a love ethic prevails. So the more we relinquish domination and control in our lives and in our organizations as leaders, the way we think and the way we behave, I, I believe we ultimately decolonize ourselves and the more we become aligned with love. And like, isn't that what leadership is about? Like, isn't leadership- Oh my gosh, yeah. people? I am so drinking every bit of this Kool-Aid. I mean, this is why we are in this sector. And I mean, I kind of want to kick it to you, JPL. We call Jean-Pierre Louis. He has a long name. So we call him JPL. <laughs> I mean, I would love just as we're having this discussion about leadership. I mean, you yeah. run this organization by which I know when the last hurricane hit, there were days where you couldn't even account for all of your staff members. And we were texting back and forth and we were trying to you know, discern the most basic forms of, is everybody okay? Talk to us just a little bit about how you're seeing this through the lens of the mental health that is almost reinstituted and re-traumatized in this country of which you are trying to serve healthcare, education, mental health services. Yeah, break it down for us. You know, with us, the name Capital Care means an act of courage. So when we bring somebody in, we go through the whole history of why is that so? Because you are capital case functioning in a country where the daily, the daily living condition is hard. Mm-hmm. It's not just the past few months, not just the past years, not just been the past two years. It's been hard since I was born. I mean, I have lived it in a way to experience it like a lot of Haitians are, but it's hard. So when we bring somebody in, we go through the whole analyzing, talking with them, letting them feel like this place here is different. This is something that you could come in here and be your authentic self. And if you have reservation, then we need to discuss that. So from the very point of interview, we let you be safe. So therefore you can you know, sh- share your own vulnerability without judgment. So for our staff, the way they deal with this whole is thing, uh, this whole crisis that we are going through now is hope. Hope for us is a moral obligation for the entire organization, for me and for the staff. So one thing that we always discuss is to never lose hope. We not in a position to lose hope because we have to continue to go through what we're going through, knowing that there will always be, you know, light at the end of the tunnel. Because we always say, you know, it gets darker before it gets light. We always say, you know, there will be a rainbow after, after the rain days. The sunshine will come through. So that, that kind of ways, you know, we, we continuously drill that and share that with our team. But I also let them be themselves. So if they need a day off, there's no pressure to respond. When the earthquake happened, it happened on a Saturday. Out. Full programs Monday through Friday, Saturdays only youth programming. Our staff were going through the same thing everybody else was going through. They were experiencing the same earthquake. Them too was being injured like everybody else was being injured. Their houses was being crushed or crumbled like everybody's houses was. But yet, I didn't have to call them to respond. 
they naturally find their way. So they're finding their way to come back to our headquarters to respond. Nurses who had their own injuries coming, doctors who had their own house crushed coming and responding. So what we have always done is we give them that space where, hey, if you need a day, take it. If you need more in a day, take it. Because constantly something is happening. So they are in full position of um, them being able to respond. But I also do not put the pressure of external folks. Like I could have easily go to Haiti. Now I believe when I have gone to Haiti, I had plenty of people calling, hey, are we going? We should go, let's put. I said, no, let them respond because they've been preparing for these things Every year, there's different things that they are able to do this by themselves. The minute we go in, you now take the power away from them. And now they feel like they are under a light and there's a different pressure. And they're already going through some stuff that we don't need to add the extra pressure. So I literally stood back and my biggest role was to just, because I know if I go in, I'm going to be saying, you on first, you on second, you take third, we're doing it this way. That's not going to be good for me. In that moment, they have to be able to be themselves and just react the way they know that they should be reacting. And they were already doing that. So why go in that and disrupt that? It's not the appropriate time to go and give in the directions. So that's one, that's, that's one of the way I lead. So that, so now if it's good, they can own it. If it's bad, they can own it. But we always say it's okay if it's bad. Because the only way it could be bad is by YouTube trying to figure things out. If you just cross your arm, it can't be bad because it's anything. But if you do a movement, you're doing things, then we're going to be okay. So that's one way. And then, of course, we also give them time to enjoy themselves. Mm-hmm. We have to make time for play. So in doing this traumatic time, you cannot be all about the work and forget that, hey, we are still human beings. What is it that you do that you enjoy? Is it some good food? Then let's have some good food. Is it some music? Let's have some music just to get that time to get away. I have videos where the staff are going to places where they know when they get out of the car, they're gonna be working three hours to provide medical service, yet they are singing together. Mm. Singing together to build their, 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 to build their uh, uh, um, how would I say, spirit, because they know what they're going to be experiencing is gonna to be tough. So therefore they build their extra reserve to be able to go through it. That's how we've been doing. I mean, the mental image you've just dropped of hope and of singing together makes me think of community. And I know because we've spent time with each of you on the screen, each of you deeply believe in the power of community. And I want to transition and kind of move and sprint towards some hope as we spend our last 10 minutes together. But Anika, would you kind of talk about the power of community in what it means for healing, what it means for moving and finding our purpose together? I'm going to let you jump off. I, you know, I could talk for an hour on community, (laughs) but, but let me just say, here is where I want to honor my ancestors and my elders, because I'm here because of their courage and their love, which is a guiding light for my life. And I'm not unique. That is true in my entire community. You know, they're the ones that taught me there is no other way to live than in community. And it's always outside of community where I find greater trouble, trouble that surpasses my ability to cope. And so I have been the benefactor of arms wide open when I find myself outside of community. Come on, baby, come on back, come on back, 
right? Because it's in community where we grieve and we love and we fight, and we strive and we heal and we survive. That's where we live. It's where we die. Eleanor, I would love for you to take this question as well, just even purely from a therapy standpoint about how this physically, emotionally, and mentally is the thing that can help bring us back to center. Because isolation is is probably the way that people feel themselves being pulled. And that is the way that we can never heal. So can you talk us through that, through the lens of your medical and coaching expertise? Yeah, I just, you know, it's not surprising that we need community because we were created for that. I mean, it's, it's part of our DNA. And if we try to do it alone, I mean, you, you put a baby in a crib and they have no, interaction with another human being, that baby's going to die, even if that baby's been fed, because that baby needs that interaction with others. So it's, it's in our physical, it's in our makeup, it's, it's absolutely what we need. And it it's just critical. And you know, when I, I, as I've been listening to all of you all, man, you're just amazing people. Um, I, I keep thinking that I wonder in five years or 10 years, are we going to look back at the pandemic as a gift? Now, I don't mean it as a gift because we've lost people that we've loved. I don't mean it as a gift because it's tearing our country apart. I don't mean it that way. But we are having to rethink really just about everything. And organizations are having to rethink everything. And I'm wondering if because of all this that has come out, are C-suites going to be more vulnerable? Are our uh, employers going to be more honest, employees be more honest? Are we going to look to the person at the desk next to us and say, I'm really having a hard time? Are we not going to feel guilty about taking a, a, a day off? I love what Jean-Louise, you were saying about your people just taking time off. Wouldn't we love a culture that allowed that not to be abused, but to be used because we need that. So I'm, I hope it comes to hope, right? That we, out of all of this, we're going to see we can't do it alone. We have to have each other. We were built for community. We've got to get rid rid of these layers where management can't be with employees and employees can't be with management. And it gets all, you know, let's break some of those barriers down because that's where the mental health, that's where the well-being, that's where the hope, that's where the growth is going to come from. And we need each other to do that. It's just essential. It's absolutely essential. So, we have a saying in our family that um, when we go on a trip, every great crisis makes a good story. Because if you don't have a crisis, you just say, oh, we went to the beach, you know, but if you went to the beach and you lost something and it makes a great story, right? That's just kind of the way we've always done. I hope that maybe we can look at this time in our lives, in the in our world, and look at it as okay, we've got some really good stories that have come out of this because I know in my own life, I I hit some 
I hit some places I'd never been before and I had to seek out help and do some things. I had, I was a, you know, I can take care of myself. Couldn't do it this year and had to seek out some help. That's been good. It's been uncovering some things in my own life that I've not dealt with before. That's healthy. That's, that's very, very powerful. So anyway, I could get on a soapbox about this, but <laughs> I really, I really do think that we can use this time to learn and to grow and to be better. And, um, and that's my hope is that we, we can do that. Noah, I would love to see the results of that last poll. I want to know how our friends are doing and how well they're resourced with their benefits, access to benefits. Wow. Um, this is really interesting. Actually, this gives me a lot of hope. Mm-hmm. Um, the numbers are stronger than I thought they would be. So thank you, everyone, for pouring into that. Um, Isla, JPL, any last thoughts about community? I'll say one super fast. Um, I loved when um, JPL, Jean-Pierre Louis um, said, um, talked about kind of giving the community back the power of that moment, right? That's so important. It's such an, it's such a, it like gives me chills, right? Knowing when you get to control, you know, you control or need to lead, knowing when you influence, knowing when you witness and knowing when you, you step back is such a, such a superpower. Um, so the thing I wanted to leave us with in community, this is more from youth development framework, but I think it's so applicable. I, I make as a parent, it's like a mandate. And as a, as a, as a human, it's a mandate is um, what, what makes a really beautiful um, framework for community is does everybody have somebody that they consider a mentor? And that doesn't have to be a former mentor relationship. I, I consider this panel my mentors, you, all of you, like I, I'm going to figure out a way to be in touch, right? And whether it's podcast or whether it's listening or reading, um, Maya Angelou is a mentor from the pages, right? So it doesn't matter. But where are you finding your, your mentorship and inspiration? Where is your community of peers? So who are the people that you can be, to Eleanor's point, very safe and vulnerable so that you have those moments to grieve or tell the story? And then who are you able to influence and bring up? You know, so where are you a mentor to someone else? So do you have a mentee or a whole slew of mentees, whether formal or informal? And so I urge us, you know, maybe all of us to, to, to carry the beacon of identify where are your mentors, where are your peers and where are your mentees that are giving you power and strength? And I did an exercise, just the last thing I'll say is I did an exercise where I, I did that for myself. And I just said, uh, I'm going to let the people that I think are mentors know, the ones that are living. And I sent them these postcards and said, um, you're my honorary mentor. You probably don't know it. You don't have to do much at all, but just let me be around you here and there. And they were like so jazzed and they started like putting, you know, and so it's also nice to just, or you're my, you're my honorary mentee that I just want to, I just want to see good things for you. And I want to lift you up and amplify your strengths. Can you let me do that and be a cheerleader? Right. Like, so I, I invite you to think of who those are for you. And if you don't, have it, build it. And if you have it, name it and see what, see what unfolds for you. Mm, That's great. Oh, okay. We had scheduled one good thing. I feel like we're, everybody's kind of getting their final thought in here. I'm loving this. Anika JPL, you want to jump in? Well, I think for me, um, what I've learned in the past, I guess, two years now is that you know, we grow with, uh, naturally we grow when we feel uncomfortable, right? When we seek in to uh, uh, overcome challenges. But one thing I'm definitely looking to do even more now is I definitely believe that, yes, we grow in community. 
not in isolation. So, you know, I'm part of several groups that believes in that, and we are committing ourselves to definitely not move away from that group, try to come together. So when we have issues, challenges, and barriers that we can share with each other and, and look for support from within, because the minute that we can leave, we leave that group and be by yourself, just like Nika says, we can find ourselves in deep troubles and, and, and not be able to have someone else to come rescue us and support us. So much gratitude. Thank you so much. And all of you all have been on the podcast and please go listen to their episodes because we get to go a little Blow bit deeper. Blow your minds. They're listed on that mental health resources page. So you can get to know them and connect with all of them. Directly. And their organizations too. So yeah. thank you guys. Honor. John and Becky, thank you so much. It's always like heartwarming and heart filling to be in rooms with you guys. I know all of us feel that way, but just thank absolutely. You. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Hey friends, thanks so much for being here. Did you know we create a landing page for each podcast episode with helpful links, freebies, and even shareable graphics? Be sure to check it out at the link in this episode's description. You probably hear it in our voices, but we love connecting you with the most innovative people to help you achieve more for your mission than ever before. We'd love for you to join our good community. It's free, and you can think of it as the after party to each podcast episode. You can sign up today at weareforgood.com backslash hello. One more thing, if you loved what you heard today, would you mind leaving us a podcast rating and review? It means the world to us and your support helps more people find our community. Thanks, friends. I'm our producer, Julie Comfer, and our theme song is Sunray by Remy Borsboom. Rabbit fans have always powered the We Are For Good podcast, but now Rabbit fans can get even more goodness and access by joining Good Friends. It's our listener support community for the We Are For Good podcast. Good Friends comes with perks, exclusive episodes with John and I, including The Good Brief, our new monthly cliff notes of the greatest takeaways and lessons learned from that month, and exclusive AMA episodes where we answer your burning questions and tap our community of experts. Join now or learn more at weareforgood.com backslash friends. We can't wait to see you inside. That's weareforgood.com slash friends.